a second golden wing lit up his face in the darkness. Finally, the rich man in the big house up on the hill, he said, Little Freddy, I'll tell you what to do. I'll, I'll give you a job for seven years. You can work for me for seven years. At the end of seven years, I'll give you your pay. We love stories! It's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's going to be a great hour. We're going to hear Little Freddy and His Whistle, a story told for you by Willie Claflin about a short young man who struggles to find work, and when he does find it, it might not be the kind of work he was hoping for. There will be music and betrayal, and as always with a Willie Claflin story, a bunch of laughs, too. And then you'll hear Fran Yardley's Connor and the Leprechaun about a leprechaun shoemaker that usually goes bare until one day he gets stung by a bee. Then the leprechaun decides it's time to make a pair of shoes for himself. And this ends up leading to the most magical day of Connor's life. You won't want to miss a minute. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Alyssa Mingurance, one of our assistant producers. Alyssa, great to have you with me. Hi, love being here. And we're going to hear a Charlotte Blake Alston story, right? Yes, so we know we're in for a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Black Mamba. Yeah, so in this story, there is a snake that is very intimidating, as snakes <laughs> tend to be. Um, but it also has some healing properties, and it has formed this special bond with a young man who, you know, uses... Um, the generosity of this snake throughout his life. And as he gets older, he is once again in need of this snake's help. But he is too sick to travel, and the snake lives up in the mountains. So the village must kind of gather together and figure out how they're going to help this man, even though that means facing this terrifying snake. <laughs> Black Mamba is the story. It's told for us by Charlotte Blake Alston. This recording made live at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, largest story Telling Festival in the West, and they've been bringing great storytelling to concert halls and festival stages and classrooms for more than 30 years. And we're happy to bring this story to you. Black Mamba by Charlotte Blake Alston on the Appleseed. So uh, this is a story that comes from the Shona people of Zimbabwe. <clears throat> and I did this story once in... Uh, a resort in upstate New York. And one woman came up to me afterwards and says, isn't that a story about Satan? And uh, I said, did Billy Crystal come in here? I didn't see him come. Um, <laughs> but you find in that part of the world the most poisonous snakes on planet Earth. A friend of mine who is from South Africa, Makhwane Mahlele, uh, says that uh, the warriors... Uh, in South Africa during the time of apartheid, he said they would study the ways of the black mamba. He said, you don't even know a black mamba is anywhere near you until it is looking you in the eyes. And then it is too late. So they have to learn the ways and the habits of these creatures and learn how to cohabit with them to stay safe. And in the instance of the python, who is the central character in this story, uh, parts of the python are actually used for medicinal purposes. So you find a lot of uh, snakes in the folklore of people from that part of the world. There was once a young man by the name of Babaka who lived in a village at the foot of a mountain. And he often would play with his friends there. And one day he was there alone. And he heard an alarming cry. 
He followed the sound and led him through a grove of trees into a clearing. On the other side of the clearing was a bush, and on the bush was a hunter's net. And caught in the net was a small but struggling python. The python caught Babakar's eye and spoke to him, Please, release me from this net. I have medicine that can help you if you are sick or you are ill. Well, Babakar thought, Python and men did not always dwell well together. But Babakar had an empathy for all living things. He broke a branch from a tree, sharpened the end on a rock, and began to cut the net and set the python free. And once again, the python spoke and said, I thank you. And again, if you are sick, if you are hurt, if you are in need, sing my song, the song of the python, Nyangara Chena, Nyangara, come out, and I will come and help you. And the two parted ways. Well, time passed. Babakra grew to manhood. And a day came when the chief of that village lay sick unto death and gathered around him the men of the council and said, my time on earth is drawing to an end. You must choose a successor. And the men of the council met all through the night, and the next morning they had made a decision. It was Baba Carr whom they had chosen. They had observed him and noted his empathy for all living things. They noted his courage, his honesty, his integrity. Well, the night before he was to become chief, he took a walk at the foot of the mountain where he had played as a child, absorbed in thought, thinking of the life that was part of his past and the life that was now to be his future. And he wasn't looking where he was stepping and twisted his foot on a rock and lay writhing in pain when he remembered the promise of the python of his childhood and he began to sing the python song. And sure enough, over the top of the mountain came Yangara, longer, thicker, and stronger than he had been in Babakar's youth, coiled his body around Babakar's foot, moved his tongue back and forth from his heel to his toe. And the pain began to subside. And he stood and put weight on it. And the two spoke again and parted ways. Well, Babakar did become chief. And it is said that he ruled with a wiseness and a fairness that had not been seen in many a year. But a day came long before Babakar was in his elder years when he lay sick. He gathered together the men of the council and said, you must go to the mountain of Yangara. You must go to his cave and bring him down. He has medicine that can help me. Take with you a calabash of water that he might drink from it on this hot day. And he taught the men the song of the python. And the men began to assemble one behind the other, behind the other. With the first one carrying the calabash of water, they began to walk towards the mountain of Yangara. They climbed the mountain. They stood before his cave and began to sing his song. Nyangara chena, Yangara chena. Nyangara began to uncoil himself once, twice, three times, began to climb up the back of the last man, over his head and down his face, up the back of the one in the front, over his head and down his face, and he began to stretch himself out on the shoulders of the men. They began to feel the weight of Nyangara. Their fear overtook them. They dropped the calabash and ran back down the mountain. Well, 
the women, upon seeing this, said, we will go to the mountain of Yangara. We will bring Yangara down to save our dying chief. So the women began to assemble one behind the other, behind the other, with the first one carrying the calabash of water, began to walk towards the mountain of Yangara, climbed the mountain, stood before his cave, and began to sing his song. Nyangara chena, Nyangara chena, Nyangara chena. Yangara began to uncoil himself once, twice, three times, began to climb up the back of the last woman, over her head and down her face, up the back of the one in front, over her head and down her face, and he began to stretch himself out on the shoulders of the women. They too began to feel the weight of Yangara. Their fear overtook them. They dropped the calabash and ran down the mountain. Well, the villagers entered the hut of Babaka and stood around his pallet and watched as the color began to leave his face. And the children, the children who had sat at his feet listening to him tell the stories of his life, listening to him tell the stories that would help them to live theirs, said, we will go to the mountain of Yangara. We will bring Yangara down to save our dying chief. But we will sing to give ourselves courage and to let Yangara know why it is we come. So the children began to assemble one behind the other, behind the other, with the first one carrying the calabash of water. And right outside the hut of Babaka, they began to sing the python song. They climbed the mountain of Yangara, stood before his cave, and sang their song. Yangara began to uncoil himself once twice, three times began to climb up the back of the last child over her head and down her face up the back of the one in front over his head and down his face and he began to stretch himself out on the shoulders of the children, they too began to feel the weight of Nyangara, they sang their song stronger Nyangara dipped his head down into the calabash of water and began to drink. And down the mountain came the children with Nyangara on their shoulders singing their song. Yangara slid off the shoulders of the children, slithered inside of Babaka's hut, coiled his body around Babaka's body from his head to his toe. And the color began to return to his face. And he sat up on his pallet and stood on wobbly legs and walked outside. And there in the sunlight was every child in the village, and one 
by one. He held each to him in a tight embrace. But then he told them, Nyangara cannot remain here among the land of men. You must see him safely back to his cave. So once again, the children began to assemble one behind the other, behind the other, with the first one carrying the calabash of water and began to walk towards the mountain singing their song. Nyangara slid off the shoulders of the children, slid back inside of his cave, coiled his body back up. And when the children saw that he was safely inside, they dropped that calabash and ran all the way back down that mountain. (laughs) But from that day to this, the children of that village hold a place of high honor because so long ago, children came together with love and with courage to save their dying chief. Charlotte Blake Alston with a story called Black Mamba, a story recorded live at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. And, of course, you can find out more about that festival by visiting their website, timpfest.org. And I've been listening to that story not only with you, but along with Alyssa Mingorance, who's with me in the studio here. Alyssa, I love a Charlotte Blake Alston story. Absolutely. And you know what I love about this story is it makes me think of my older sister because she is very allergic to cats and dogs. Um, But when she was younger, she just loved snakes. And so she went to this birthday party one time and they had this like ginormous snake, like huge, you know, one of those like 20 feet long, (laughs) you know, big boys. And she was over there. (laughs) That was the activity of the birthday party. Right, exactly. And she was just like (laughs) hugging it and kissing it and loving all over the snake but if you ever put her in the room with like you know the softest sweetest kitten she would jump on the furniture and scream (laughs) and be so scared and so i always think of her and i hear this story you know the line between us and some of our animal friends right Mm -hmm. is uh easier to cross for some people for some animals than it is for others right and Mm. stories about interactions with animals can sometimes be stories about crossing the line into kind of an unknown space they can they can be stories about crossing cultural lines or Absolutely. crossing 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 lines between you and some of the people that you misunderstand, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or sometimes even like crossing lines within ourselves, sure. discovering new parts of ourselves and being comfortable with that. Yeah. Charlotte Blake Alston, of course, the wonderful storyteller and musician. Charlotte Blake Alston, the wonderful singer, comes from a musical family. Her brother, uh, her late brother, a, a jazz musician of some renown. And it's always, again, a pleasure to hear a Charlotte Blake Alston story. Thanks for bringing it to us, Alyssa. No worries. Love being here. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, Black Mamba, a story told for you by Charlotte Blake Alston. Willie Claflin and Fran Yardley coming up. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you can tell around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine, a memory 
about piano lessons. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Our daughter is learning how to play the piano. Now, when I say that, you might imagine a six- or eight-year-old kid taking piano books and heading down to a piano teacher's house down the block to have a lesson once a week and practice at home. And That's not exactly how it is. Our daughter is a grown-up. She's finishing up her undergraduate degree, and she's teaching herself to play piano from books between afternoons and evenings wrestling with term papers and books. She sits at the piano bench and patiently teaches herself the next thing to learn. At first, we heard simple melodies plunked out in the living room, and then both hands making music together, simple folk songs at first, and then more and more complex compositions as she gets better and better, better every day. We can hear it. There's a lot to like about being able to play the piano, but was there ever a kid who liked taking piano lessons? Probably, but let's say at least that I was not one of those kids. And there's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't have loved it. My piano teacher was the best. His house where he taught was like a hundred yards from my house. I could walk there in about a minute. It was too easy. He was patient and kind, and he took his students on field trips to recitals and other piano-related stuff. He held house concerts in his living room, and with our parents, we'd go and listen to these world-class musicians up close and personal. On Bach's birthday, we set up a volleyball net in his yard, and he packed lunches for his students in takeout boxes marked Bach's Lunch. And we all played volleyball while we listened to Bach blaring through a boombox. I mean, he made piano lessons as fun as piano lessons could possibly be. And to top all that off, the family piano at my house had been converted from an old player piano. And the old player piano pedals could be deployed from a hatch in the bottom of the piano. And after we practiced, my mom would sometimes let us fold those pedals down and imagine they were part of the control console of a spaceship to Mars. So, yeah, in terms of piano lessons, we had it pretty good. But I hated piano lessons. I mean, it was hard. It was hard learning to play piano. It meant practicing every day. It worked my brain. And finally, after learning to play, oh, I don't know, hot cross buns or something, on the plastic recorder at school with the rest of the kids in my class, which was fun, I went to my piano teacher's house and announced to him that I was done learning to play the piano. I was not going to take piano lessons anymore. Now, I had not consulted with my parents about this. My piano teacher asked me what I was going to do instead of taking piano lessons, and I said, well, I'm learning to play the recorder. I had come prepared for just such a question, and I pulled my plastic recorder out of my backpack, and I played hot cross buns. That'll teach him, I thought. Well, that was my last piano lesson. The tactic somehow, miraculously, worked. And I've always regretted not being a better piano player than I am. When I was in high school and sang in the choir, I watched the student accompanists with admiration and not just a little envy. When I studied music theory as a singer, I fell in love with playing music on the piano again, and I learned some tricks that get me by well enough, and I've written a ton of songs and even performed them on stage and on recordings. 
but I always feel like I'm pretty far behind. Even now, I play and play and play, and I wonder how I might play if I hadn't walked away from it for those years when I just couldn't make myself buckle down and practice. And now, well, aren't I just too old? The answer to that question comes in the form of our daughter's steady practice, just about every day in the living room. She's way too old for us to make her do stuff like that. She's practicing because she likes it. We listen to her play, My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, My Bonnie Lies Over the Sea, My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, No, Bring Back My Bonnie to Me. And we hear her play Brahms' Lullaby. Da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da-da-da-da-da-dum. Or, more recently, In Dublin's fair city, where girls are so pretty, I first set my eyes on sweet Molly Malone. As she wheeled her wheelbarrow through streets broad and narrow, crying cockles and mussels, alive, alive, oh. It's inspiring. It's a beautiful thing that's happening at our house. And sometimes I creep over to the piano and I open her books and I plunk out what she's learning on the piano myself, working my brain to read the notes and make them sound like they're supposed to on the keys with my stubborn fingers. And... You know what? I learn a little bit every time I sit down. I feel like an old dog sometimes, but maybe I can learn new tricks. Once upon a time, I might have said I never met a kid who liked taking piano lessons. But not so now. Count our daughter, for example, among those who seem to like it. And while you're at it, count me among those folks, too. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. A lot coming up. You're going to hear from Willie Claflin. And Fran Yardley is going to wrap us up with her story, Connor and the Leprechaun. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the food that we share, through the films that we see, through the books that we love. And we love to talk about some of those stories with friends. And I'm, I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me Lisa Valentine Clark. She's the host of The Lisa Show. And I must say... The voice of James Hawkins' mother in yes. the Peabody-nominated <laughs> Treasure Island 2020. At least it's such a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so much for having me today. You know, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about a piece of art that most people might underestimate, but that has had a running important, dare I say, vital importance in my life. Dare. Say it. I, I Vital. was going to say it. it <laughs> my life would not would be so different without this piece of art. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, pieces of art are, yes. are a heck of a lot more than just stuff hanging on the wall, oh, right? Oh, a hundred percent. And and when I say piece of art, I mean it in the literal sense, <laughs> but I, it may surprise most people. Well, surprise me. Have I piqued your curiosity enough? Curiosity. Let's talk about this piece of art. I want to talk about the timeless film, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Oh, good heavens! And oh, I'm being a hundred percent serious. I am all. I'm there. I and I am there a hundred percent. I gotta tell you. So this movie 
you know, I went to go see it when I was quite young, right? And I saw it in the theater, and I had one of those moments that I think you don't realize what you're experiencing until you look back later as an adult about yeah. how, uh, you know, changing, life-changing it was, where I sat down in a movie and I was completely entertained the entire time, lost in it. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. And for those who haven't experienced this movie, it's, you know, Paul Rubens playing Pee Wee, Pee Wee Herman. It is so ridiculous that a grown man acting like a kid with, you know, endless amounts of toys and money and games and just going on this adventure. It's yeah. his big adventure, and yeah. that's all it is. Looking for his stolen bike. His, for his right? bike. <laughs> And I remember just thinking, I've never seen anything like it. There were so many quotable lines yeah. from the the film. I have since seen it countless times. But it started off on a, wait, you can you can make a movie like that? <laughs> you can be like that and people will just set aside their disbelief right. and yeah. take you on this journey. So I was completely entertained by it. And I was also artistically inspired by it. I like to do voices. Yeah. I like to do characters. I wanted to make movies with my friends. That was yeah. the big dream as a little kid. And so having that that movie became the in the back pocket of like, this is a classic, classic, beautiful film. I don't even know why. Now, as I got older, and I really feel like this, this movie just went in my back pocket and yeah. just went through the different phases of my life. So I have a couple of best friends that I've known since I was two years old, right? <laughs> we share and quote that movie and e- did in my childhood, today, right? even yeah. today. <laughs> when I went to college and I was just this college student looking for new friends, you know, and looking for a new identity, trying to find my place in the world. Who am I going to be? What am I going to study? That movie came with me. Oh, you like this movie? And then starting to quote it. And it just like bonded me to a new group of friends, helped, you know, helped us to talk about screenwriting sure. and character development in an you know, audacious way, right? You never would. You, you, you would you never, never guess. know. You yeah. don't You never know, know what films are going to become no. important in that way, right? And I think at that age, too, even in college, I would have I never thought that it would continue that. Yeah. You know, and when, when I met my husband, we would just joke. And any time it was just like an inside joke about, you know, a stick of gum. Spearmint or fruit? Oh, fruit, please. We could never accept... I mean, that's a a direct quote from the movie. We could never just say, hey, do you want some gum? It was like, spearmint or fruit? Like, it it just became part of, of my my being yeah. in that way. And sharing something like that with somebody, having kind of a, yeah. you know, a movie like that with, again, as you say, with so many wacky, quotable lines, right? Yeah, and ridiculous. It it can become sort of the framework upon which you hang conversations 100%. with people that also love the movie, right? <laughs> it is. And then, you know, as I got older and started to make movies with my friends yeah. and started to uh, do pitches for um, different scripts and things like that. It's amazing how we came to go look at that script of what everything happens. Like, this is how he lived once upon a time. Yeah. Then one day, his bike was stolen. You know, this happens, the crisis. And then this is how he finds his bike, the resolution. Yeah. How it, it just strikes me how much many artists still like use that framework. Yeah. So maybe a year and a half ago, I was able to go to a talk back with Pee Wee Herman oh, himself. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> where we watched the movie with a bunch of other Gen Xers, oh, just sakes. like me, screaming and laughing yeah. and crying at this movie. I, we'd all seen a million times. He did the talk back and he said, you know, when we wrote this movie, we literally got this script book. Like how to write a script. It was the first script we'd ever written. And it was like, here's how you write it in 90 pages. The first 30 pages is, you know, once upon a time setting up this world. The next 30 pages was the crisis. And the final 30 pages was the resolution. And he's like, and then we did it. And who knew that 30 years later we'd be doing this? We'd be sitting down. And that was a real realization to me, like almost, you know, because I'm always looking for the perfect, you know, metaphor for life, right? Of this movie, you never know what kind of adventure you're going to go on. (laughs) And, you know, pieces of art, movies, TV shows, for whatever reason, stick to you and they never leave. And I think that of all the, you know, great art house films that I've seen, international cinema, whatever, uh, you know, important films. This is the one that probably this defines or closely sticks. follows oh, my life the most. I, I read a, a, a review of, of Pee Wee's Playhouse, the television uh-huh. show, right? And the person who was writing the review said, in the us versus them world of adults versus kids, mm-hmm. it's clearer than ever that Pee Wee Herman is one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a really great way to put it. (laughs) And listen, you know, I ought to get in a a Pee Wee Herman quote. You know, I think the one for us when Mm -hmm. we were kids was, I meant to do that. You know, I mean, how many times have you heard? (laughs) I think my favorite is, you know, why don't you make me? Well, I don't make monkeys. I just train them. (laughs) Or how many times has I been driving along with somebody that I love and said in a mysterious voice, it was a dark and stormy night. The worst wreck I'd ever seen. (laughs) It's so great. Pee-wee's big adventure. (laughs) Who'd have known? Lisa Clark, Lisa (laughs) Valentine Clark, it's such a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you. (laughs) Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. And it's always fun to chat with a friend about one of the ways in which a great story came into their lives. I'm Sam Bain. Lots more coming up. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be with you on today's episode of the Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Lisa Valentine Clark about Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And up next, a story from Bay Area storyteller Willie Claflin, a piece called Little Freddy and His Whistle. This is a story about Freddy trying to find a job. And thankfully, a rich man offers Freddy a job where he'll work for seven years and then get all the money he's earned at the end of it. The only question, can the rich man be trusted? Here's Willie Claflin with Little Freddy and His Whistle on the Appleseed. Little Freddy and his whistle. Little Freddy never grew up. I mean, he got older and older, but he never grew up. He never got any taller than about like that. And so when he left school, it was time for him to go get work. Nobody would give him a job. They all said, you're too small, little Freddy. You can't work here. We don't need somebody as small as you. He didn't know what to do. He thought, if I can't get a job, how am I going to make any money? If I can't make any money, how am I going to eat? Finally, the rich man in the big house up on the hill, he said, little Freddy, I'll tell you what to do. I'll, I'll give you a job for seven years. You can work for me for seven years. At the end of seven years, I'll give you your pay. 
And little Freddy thought, at the end of seven years, I should have enough money, probably, to buy a whole house. So he worked for the rich man for seven long years. Now, it was hard work, and he had to get up early in the morning before the sun came up, and he had to work late at night long after the sun went down, and he had to sleep out in the barn, which in Norway is very, very cold in the winter, and he never was given any new clothes. So by the end of seven years, he was all dressed in rags, but he thought, now it's time. Seven years had come and gone, and he wanted to go get his money. So he went to the rich man. He said, seven years is over. I come for my pay. And the rich man said, little Freddy, I'm going to give you exactly what you're worth. Here's three thin dimes. Little Freddy said, three dimes? I've been working for you for seven years. I should have enough money to buy a whole house or something with three dimes. I can't even buy a cup of tea. And the rich man said, little Freddy, that's all you're worth. And he kicked little Freddy down the stairs. There was little Freddy now walking down the road, only three dimes to his name. He thought, what am I going to do? I'm going to starve to death. Nobody will give me a job. And he sat down on a rock next to the road to think over what he was going to do. And all of a sudden, it was like a shadow came across the sun. And there was a man, maybe 10, 15, 20 feet tall, all dressed in rags. And his tall, tall man looked down at little Freddy. He said, uh, excuse me, I notice you got three dimes there. I was wondering if you might give me one of those dimes because I haven't had anything to eat in a long time and I sure could maybe use an extra dime. And little Freddy, he said, this is all I got in the world is these three dimes. But looks like you're worse off than I am, so here you go. And he gave the tall man a dime, and the man tipped his hat. He went on his way. Little Freddy went walking down the road. He walked and walked till his feet got sore. Sat down on a log next to the road to think about what he was going to do. Took his shoes off, rubbed his feet, you know. And all of a sudden, once more, it was like a big shadow came across the sun. And there was a tall man twice as tall as the first man, maybe 30 feet tall, a giant. And the giant looked down at little Freddy. He said, excuse me, I notice you got uh, two dimes. I was wondering... Could you spare one of those dimes because I haven't had anything to eat in a long time and it sure would help me if I could have one of those dimes. And little Freddy said, two dimes, it's all I got in the whole world. I just gave a dime away. Well, it looks like you're worse off than I am, so here you go. And he gave the giant his second dime and the giant tipped his hat, was on his way. Little Freddy walked down the road, only one dime left until finally he realized that it was just hopeless. He was not going to be able to buy any food. He wasn't going to get a job. He didn't know what to do. He sat down on the bank by the side of the road, and he started to cry. All of a sudden, once more, it was like a huge shadow came across the sun. And there was a man taller than the tops of the tallest trees. And little Freddy looked way up, and this man was all dressed in rags, too. And the man looked way down at little Freddy, and he said, Excuse me, I notice you got a dime. I wonder if you could spare me that dime, because I haven't had anything to eat in a long time, and that dime sure would help me. Maybe get something to eat. And little Freddy said, this dime's all I got in the whole world is this one dime. But looks like you're worse off than I am, so here you go. And the giant reached down to take the dime. And as soon as little Freddy had given him the dime, the giant sat down on the ground next to little Freddy. And he leaned over on one elbow, so he was just the right size to talk to little Freddy. And he said, you've been so good to me and to my two brothers who came before me that I'm going to give you three wishes. Three wishes, said little Freddy. Okay, I heard about stories like this. Okay, uh, first thing I want, I want a bow and arrow that hit anything I aim at. That's easy, said the giant, reached in his bag, took out a bow and arrow about this big, said, that'll hit anything you aim at. It's a magic bow and arrow. Take care of it, little Freddy. Okay, said little Freddy, for my second wish, I want a whistle, a magic whistle, that every time I blow on it, people will just have to dance. I mean, as if they're hypnotized, they'll just have to dance. That would be fun. I like parties. And the giant reached into his sack. He took out a whistle. He gave it to little Freddy. He said, that's a magic whistle. When you blow that, little Freddy, people will just have to dance. One wish left. Be careful what you wish for. And little Freddy said, okay, I got one wish left. I wish, um, 
I wish everybody would give me the first thing I ask for. And the giant said, that's a good wish. And he stood up, he tipped his hat, and in one step he was over the hill and gone. Well, little Freddy was anxious to try out his wishes, so he went as quickly as he could to the next town. There was a great big fancy hotel, you know, with gold columns and stained glass windows and everything. And little Freddy went inside, and the man behind the desk looked down at him and said, I don't think we serve people like you here. And little Freddy said, oh, I know I'm all in rags, but I want the fanciest room in the hotel, and I'm not going to pay for it because I don't have any money. Well, the man behind the counter, he looked down and said, you expect me to give you a room when you can't even pay for it? Sure, no problem. So he showed Freddy into this incredibly beautiful room with this view of the valley, and little Freddy saw a restaurant across the street, thought, oh, I'll go try to get a meal over there. So he crossed the street, went into a restaurant, a very fancy restaurant. The waiter came over and said, excuse me, I don't think we sell people like you. And little Freddy said, I know you don't, but I want the fanciest, most expensive meal you got, and I want that seat in the window over there, and I'm not going to pay for it because I don't have any money. And the waiter said, do you expect me to give you a table and a fancy meal when you won't even pay for it? What an insult! No problem! Help yourself! <laughs> so little Freddy thought, this is excellent. Everybody has to give me the first thing I ask for. Well, the dining room started to fill up with people after a while. Little Freddy had finished eating his meal, and very quietly he just took his whistle out of his pocket and started to play just to see what would happen. Well, as soon as he started blowing, everybody jumped up from their tables and they started to dance. I mean, they knocked their chairs over, mashed potatoes, peas flying all over the place. Even the old three-legged dog over by the door, he was kind of dancing away as best he could. And little Freddy, he just played on. He went... And out in the kitchen, all the mice were dancing around on the shelves, knocking all the glasses over on the floor. There was broken glass everywhere. Finally, little Freddy had had enough fun, tucked the whistle back in his pocket. Everybody kind of went, <gasps> like they'd woken up out of a dream. And they tipped their chairs back up and sat down to eat again, looking a little bit embarrassed. Well, it had been a long day. Little Freddy went to bed, went to sleep that night, got up the next morning, went down the road. By noontime, because everybody had to give him the first thing he asked for, he had a great big white horse and a golden saddle and bags of silver and gold and this beautiful suit of clothes. Round a bend in the road came another man on a great big white horse with a golden saddle and bags of silver and gold and a suit of fancy clothes. You know who it was? It was the rich man. Well, the rich man took one look at little Freddy, didn't know who he was. Little Freddy said, hey, remember me? And the rich man said, I don't know who you are. And little Freddy said, it's me. I'm the guy who worked for you for seven years, and all you gave me was three dimes. You remember that? And the rich man said, where'd you get all that stuff? Where'd you get that horse? Where'd you get that saddle? And little Freddy said, well people gave them to me. And the rich man said, nobody would give away bags of silver and gold. Nobody would give away a horse like that or a saddle like that. You must have stolen them. You're a thief, little Freddy. And in this country, thieves are going to get hanged. I'm going to have you thrown in jail. I'm going to have you hanged, little Freddy. Little Freddy said, oh, gee, well, tell you what, how about, would you like to make a bet? And the rich man said, sure, I'll make a bet. What kind of bet? Little Freddy said, do you see that apple tree way across the field? You see, way up on top of that apple tree, there's one apple there. I bet you I can hit that apple with my bow and arrow. And the rich man said, that's ridiculous. Even the king's best archers couldn't possibly hit that apple. What a ridiculous bet. Well, little Freddy said, but do you want a bet or not? And the rich man said, of course, I can't lose. Okay, said little Freddy, here's the deal. If I hit that apple, then I get your horse and your saddle and your bags of silver and gold and your suit of clothes. 
And if I miss the apple, fine. You can have my bags of silver and gold. You can have my horse and saddle. You can have my suit of clothes. You can throw me in jail and have me hanged. I don't care. Okay, said the rich man. They shook hands. Bet's a bet. Little Freddy reached into his bag, pulled out the bow and arrow. He aimed as well as he could. And he let that arrow fly, and sure enough, the arrow went straight through the center of the apple, and the apple fell in two pieces on the ground. Well, a bet's a bet, you know, fair is fair. The rich man had to give him his horse and his saddle, his bags of silver and gold, and his suit of clothes, too. And he had to walk all the way back to town with nothing on at all. He was mad and really embarrassed. He said, I'm going to get you, little Freddy. You're going to pay for this joke. And he went straight to the chief of police, who was his friend, and he said, I want you and your men. You ride after little Freddy. You have him arrested. You throw him in jail. I want him hanged. He's a thief. And so the chief of police, he got on his horse, and all his men, they got on their horses, and they rode after little Freddy down the road till they caught up with him. They said, you're under arrest. They grabbed his bow and arrow, broke it in half. And little Freddy said, oh, gee, can't you just let me go this one time? And the chief of police said, let you go? Sure, no problem because they had to give him the first thing he asked for, and the chief of police rode back to town, and the rich man said, where's little Freddy? And the chief of police said, well, he asked us to let him go, so we let him go. And the rich man said, you idiot, go get him. So the chief of police, he rode after little Freddy again, and this time they grabbed him, and they brought him back to jail because he'd already used up his wish. They threw him in jail, and next morning they were going to hang him, and they brought him out, and everybody in the village was gathered there, and a hangman was there in a long black gown. He could barely even see his face, and he said, Little Freddy, do you have any last requests before you are hanged? And little Freddy said, Oh, everybody looks so sad around here. What a sad occasion. Maybe I could cheer things up by playing a little tune. And he took the whistle out of his boot and just started to play a little tune, you know, something like... Well, you know what happened. Everybody had to dance. There was nothing at all they could do about it. Even the horses, two steps to the left, two steps to the right, two steps forward, two steps back. Even the little babies in the cradles who couldn't walk yet, they were shaking their arms and legs as best they could outside the cradles. Well, little Freddy played on and on. People yelled, no, stop, we can't dance any longer. This went on for hours and hours and hours, but little Freddy wouldn't stop. Everybody was exhausted. They fell down on the ground. They all passed out with their arms and legs still twitching a little bit. And as soon as they were all passed out on the ground, little Freddy started to run. He ran as fast as he could go through the center of town, over the bridge, over the river, down along the highway that runs all the way through the deep, dark woods, over the mountain, into the next country. He was gone. They never found him again. But I have heard that he lived happily forever after. He got a nice little house there. He just asked somebody for it, and they gave it to him. And he's got a nice horse and a, and a saddle at any time. Anytime he's feeling a little bit sad, maybe about missing his bow and arrow or something like that, all he has to do is have a party because when he plays his whistle, you know that everybody just has to dance. And that is the end of Little Freddy and His Whistle.
an enthusiastic audience for Willie Claflin and little Freddie and his whistle. What fun to bring you that tale. We're going to wrap up now with storyteller Fran Yardley with a story called Connor and the Leprechaun about a leprechaun who's known for making shoes yet always walks around barefoot himself. It's a story full of laughter and whimsy and magic. We're going to dive in. Here's Connor and the Leprechaun from Fran Yardley. was a leprechaun who lived high in a tree. The tree was on the edge of a wild, bright field, and behind the field was the rich, dark forest. Across the field was the village where the people lived, and beyond the village was the sparkling sea. Now, the wonderful thing about this leprechaun was that he made the finest, the softest shoes. But the strange thing about him was that he always went barefoot. Because every time he would make a pair of shoes, he would hear some human crying. He would seek out the crying and give away his shoes, and the crying would stop. Well, one fine spring day, the leprechaun was lying high on a branch in his tree, wiggling his toes in the sunshine. And the air smelled like a thousand spices. The leprechaun sat up and he stretched and he said, Tree! I think I'll go down to the field and play with my friends, the butterflies. And the tree said, good. (laughs) In a deep, rich voice that was truly rooted to the earth. And so the leprechaun tumbled down freely from branch to branch, tickling the tree as he went. And when he got to the last branch, he whirled around it and he landed on the ground with a bound. And then he patted the tree and he said, I'll be off now to play with the butterflies. And the tree said, I'll stay right here. (laughs) The leprechaun laughed politely and he said, you'll do that because this was the tree's only joke. Well, soon the leprechaun was bounding up and down in the grasses with the butterflies. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, 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 a bee bit me in the toe. He looked down and his big toe was swollen up as red as a ripe strawberry. He said, bee, why'd you bite me in the toe? And the bee buzzed around his head and said, wear shoes. Wear shoes. The leprechaun limped angrily back to the tree and he said, Tree, what kind of shoes shall I make for myself? And the tree said, Make shoes so you can walk up my trunk, out on my branch, and enjoy yourself. Oh, good, 
said the leprechaun. I'm going down to the lake now to see me friend the bird. And the tree said, <laughs> I'll stay right here. The leprechaun ran down to the lake and he said, Bird, bird, where are you? Oh, oh, bird, bird, there you are. A bird. I'm going to make myself a pair of shoes. Now, what kind of shoes shall I make for myself? And the bird said, Make shoes with a wing. And then she thought about it and she said, Make shoes with two wings. And then she got really excited. She fluttered up around his head and she said, Make shoes with four wings, and then you can fly above the earth as I do. Oh, good, said the leprechaun. He ran back to the tree, climbed up way to the highest most branch where he kept all of his materials for making shoes, and he went right to work. He worked all the rest of that day, and just as the sun was setting, the first golden wing sprang to life in the dying light of the day. He kept on working way into the wee hours of the night when the second golden wing lit up his face in the darkness. But now he was exhausted. His muscles were so sore, he had to lay back and rest. And so he did that. But he hadn't been asleep long when he was awakened by a sound, a piercing cry of human pain. Oh, oh, there's trouble somewhere, tree. I'll be back. And the leprechaun climbed down the tree barefoot because he had not finished his shoes to seek out the crying. It didn't take him long to find it because there right on the edge of the woods, leaning against a tree, was a boy named Connor from the neighboring village. Connor was eight years old and he was lame he couldn't run very well. And this was his story. Every day, Connor and all the other boys and girls would arrive at school before the school teacher, and so they would play outside in the playground. Some of them would run around the schoolhouse or climb trees, but not Connor. He would take a stick and he would smooth a place in the dirt, and he would make the most wondrous drawings. But a ritual grew up around those drawings. A group of boys, led by a bully named Dirk, would come over and they would stomp out his drawings and they'd yank him to his feet and then Dirk would say, All right, Connor, why don't you be a man and run? We're going to race around the schoolhouse and you better not come in last. Twenty boys would line up. Someone would yell, Go! And they'd race around the schoolhouse and Connor would try his hardest. But he always came in last. And then Dirk would shove him and he'd say, you're so slow, Connor. All right, we're going to race up that tree and you better not come in last. Someone would yell, go. Connor would climb that tree as fast as he could. But he always came in last. And this night, he was bitter sick of it. As he leaned against the tree, he said, I know those drawings are good. They just, they won't even look at them. I hate that school. I hate it. The leprechaun could see in the dark. And although he saw that Connor's tears were as bitter as lemon drops, he turned away, saying, I can help the boy. He went back to his tree and climbed up in it and went back to sleep. And the next morning when he woke up, he went right to work on the shoes. And when he finished them, he put them on his feet and they fit him perfectly. He stood up 
and he walked down the trunk of the tree. And the tree said, Oh, brave shoes. And the leprechaun said, That they are. I'm going to show me friend the bird. And the tree said, I'll stay right here. The leprechaun ran down to the lake and said, Bird, bird, where are you? Oh, oh, bird, there you are. Look at me shoes. Aren't they grand? And the bird said, Come, fly above the earth as I do. The leprechaun flew up in the air, over the forest, over the field, over the village, and finally out over the sparkling sea. Oh, he said, "'Tis a wondrous life you live seeing sights like these." And the bird said, "'We all do.'" As they were flying up there, suddenly there was a sound. It was a piercing cry of human pain. "'Ah, there's trouble somewhere, bird. I'll be back.'" And quickly he flew back over the village and over the schoolhouse, and he looked down just in time to see Dirk stomp out Connor's drawing and yank him to his feet. Someone yelled, go! And they raced around the schoolhouse. And Connor came in last. And then Dirk shoved him. He shoved him so hard he fell back into the bushes. And he said, all right, Connor, you're so slow. We're going to race around the schoolhouse again. And then we're going to race up the tree. And you better not come in last. And Connor, furious, was just getting to his knees when he heard a sound in the bushes next to him. It was the leprechaun, and he was sounding none too pleased. The leprechaun said, hold still, will you? I'm trying to put me shoes on you. And he laced those shoes on Connor's feet, and they fit him just perfectly. And the leprechaun said, now stand up, will you, and race. Stand up, will you? Go stand up and win. Connor stood up. He felt as if he were standing on waves. Someone yelled, go! And Connor shot out ahead of all the other boys like a stallion full of life. He raced around that schoolhouse nine times before anyone else had gone around even once. And when Dirk came huffing and puffing in, there was Connor leaning against a tree looking up at the sky Lovely day, said Connor. <gasps> well, said Dirk, who couldn't even get another word out for a minute. Keep working at it, Dirk. You'll get faster, don't worry. <sighs> All right, said Dirk. We're going we're gonna to race up the tree now, and you better not, not come in last. Connor said, I'll show you how to climb a tree. Connor folded his arms, and he walked up the trunk of the tree, out onto a branch, turned a somersault, and floated gently back down to the ground. All right, he said. Come on over here, all of you. Come on, all of you. Close your mouth, stop your gaping. You too, Dirk, before I lose my temper. Come here. Twenty wide-eyed boys came shyly forward as Connor picked up a stick. And then Connor knelt down in the dirt and he smoothed the place and he made the most beautiful drawing of a butterfly. He looked up at the boys and he said, all right, sit down. I'm going to show you 
how to draw. And those boys, they learned a thing or two that day. Later that night, Connor, with the winged shoes in his hand, came running across the field. He stopped at the leprechaun's tree. He said, I know you're up there, leprechaun. I've come to give you back your shoes and to thank you for the most wonderful day in my whole life. After a minute, the leprechaun said, Ah, keep the shoes, why don't you? Keep them all your life. Go flying above the sea and do your wondrous drawings. Thank you, said Connor. He started running back and then he stopped and he called back, Thank you, leprechaun. For a long time, the leprechaun lay there on his branch. He watched the stars come out one by one. And then he patted his friend the tree and he said, Ah, well, I guess I was meant to go barefoot on this earth. (laughs) And there it was, Connor and the Leprechaun, told for you by Fran Yardley. A great pleasure for me to bring these stories to you today. Our producer is Jeff Simpson, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.